0: the rural health voice episode 62 mental health welcome to the rural health voice i am beth o'connor your host we discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities how can we address mental health on a community level sabrina burris executive director of the Aero project joined me to discuss how they are identifying and addressing the needs in Stanton, Augusta, and Waynesboro. Well welcome Sabrina.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, I appreciate you being here. Hey let's let's jump in the Wayback Machine for a minute. How did you first become interested in mental health?
1: So I, it's a really long journey, but just to make it short and concise, I worked in um, the business sector for a number of years and decided it really wasn't for me. So then I started doing some nonprofit work and some work in the school system and really loved engaging with the community on this sort of more um, face-to-face level. So I'm not selling you a product, I'm actually talking with you about the things that you want and need. Um, I, I was honored to be found um, actually at an interim job waiting tables by the first mental health job that I worked with, um, an agency called Compass Counseling Services. And that was my first experience doing clinical work. Um, And it was this love of community, this engagement to individuals and their needs, and being able to have a conversation around that, that really formed my passion around mental health work um and is the reason that i went back to school to get my master's in counseling so that i could further that um, passion and experience Mm
0: -hmm. and now you're not just the executive director but the co-founder of the arrow project how did that come about
1: yeah so um as i was finishing my second master's degree in counseling i was having dinner with one of my dear friends and colleagues um, and sort of lamenting I'm in my, you know, late 30s now, and I've been through three different career changes, and I'm finishing a second master's degree, and I really just want to do something meaningful with all of this education now that I have, and all of this, these years of experience, and most importantly, my passion for community. So I started to talk with Charles Shepard about um, my desire to work in the barriers. So he and I collectively have about 10 years of experience and for-profit mental health work, and there are so many barriers. <clears throat> Is there the right insurance? Are you in counseling because you really wanna be in counseling or you're forced to be because of probation or or other you know extenuating circumstances? Have you had an experience that's diverse and inclusive with a counselor? And so we really just wanted to create a space where we not just acknowledge the barriers to mental health, but we really work to create programs where those barriers can be broken down. And then for Charles, I think it was really more around um, professional development. So making sure that our community has equal affirmative access to mental health providers. And so we also provide training opportunities for folks really as young as high school, all the way through their residency and counseling or supervision in social work. Um, And then the, the third and most important piece that actually shows up as a barrier as a community collaboration and collective impact. So can we have a conversation around the importance of doing work together so we serve more folks when we serve them together? When you say, this is what I can offer, and I say, this is what I can offer, and we bring that to the table. And so those are the three main pillars, really, of Aero Project that came out of that long time ago, three years now, um, dinner conversation where I was talking with my dear colleague about how to make something happen in the mental health field.
0: And you mentioned the need for a diverse and inclusive experience. How is that important in mental health?
1: So, you know, one of the things that we do as counselors is provide space for affirmation. So I see I see you, I hear you, I honor your story. That can be really hard to hear from a person that comes from a marginalized population. Um, as an African-American woman myself, um, I, I can say that it's, it's hard for me to sit in, in what I can only call white spaces and feel like, there is a shared or lived experience that is similar to mine in a way that helps them hear and see me for who I really am. So if I can offer, if our organization can offer three clinicians of color and four clinicians who identify as part of the LGBTQ community and three clinicians who have a religious background, then we have all of these different spaces where the client who sits in front of us, hopefully can feel not just affirmed, also aligned with the clinician who is sitting in front of them. It's such an important part of the story to feel safe enough to tell the story.
0: Sure, I'm thinking about how most women are more comfortable with an ob who's also a woman. I would think the mm-hmm. same would apply to any other status.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think it doesn't get said enough. You know th- when the counselors in your direct area are all that that is there and maybe they are all you know cis had white males in their mid thirties, and, and there are no other options, then it's this decision, do I go to counseling and get the help that I need and maybe not feel as safe as I wanna feel or as heard or, or aligned with my clinician, or do I just not get counseling? It's in, and that happens in mental health, that happens in healthcare, all of the time that people are making decisions to not get the help they need because they can't find a provider that aligns with who they are and their identity.
0: And you also talked about the need for collective impact. Uh, looking at Arrow's website, there's uh, some information about the need to alleviate barriers by creating innovative partnerships. What has Arrow been able to accomplish through its partnerships?
1: So that I think that is one of the, the most beautiful things. There are so many beautiful things that I would say, and of course I'm biased about our organization, but when we started in 2018, Our organization started with conversations. Our local YMCA, our school districts, our churches, our LGBTQ center. What is the need that you think that your community members that you serve, your population has, or that you even know that they have? How can we help to fill that need. So all of these beautiful conversations around, you know, well, kids between 12 and 15 really struggle with X, Y, and Z. Can we talk about bullying? Can we talk about identity? Can we talk about grief and loss? And so then, what AERO does once we have these partnership conversations is create sort of these very comprehensive proposals that says, here's the needs that you have identified. Here's the ways that we feel like we can meet those needs. Here's the timeline for implementation, and here's how we evaluate that process. Um, and And so from day one, we have made over 38 community partners serving a multitude of different populations and age groups and identified needs by just saying what is it that you think that community members need and not just asking the folks that serve community members, but also asking community members themselves. So as we were coming into the year that will not be named 2020 and and the ways that COVID-19 was going to shift our lives. We did a lot of community surveying. What is it that you need? Access to resources, specific groups, support for your kids. And then we started to create programs around that. Um, 2020 was one of the largest years for us as an organization around that pillar of collective impact. um, We were able to create what we have named here locally, the Stanton Augusta Waynesboro Mental Health Task Force, which is a collective of over 18 mental health providers, private agencies, nonprofit organizations, community stakeholders all working together to alleviate the stresses around COVID-19 and this pandemic that we already knew was going to change our lives. And so it's just been really lovely to see that continue to grow for us as an organization.
0: And the Arrow project has had some big growth spurts lately. What all went into making that happen?
1: Funding, support, you know, I think the it's it's a really lovely segue to talk about first the collective impact and then to talk about how we made the work happen. So in 2020, that was our biggest year of funding, local funders, local donors, organizations saying, we see you, we honor your work, we are so appreciative of the way that you have supported our particular population. Um, and, and so we were granted over $170,000 worth of local grant funds and donorships for people that really wanted to see that work continue to grow. In that space, we were able to to increase our partnerships. We will, we were able to increase our staff. So in 2018, Charles and I were the ones going out and doing the field work. We're making the partnerships, we're creating the, the proposals and the programs, and we were actually running the programs. In 2020, our staff increased by over a third of of what we were. So we went from two or three of us trying to do all of the the many things to, as a matter of fact, um, August 1st of this year, our staff will increase to 21 staff from master's level clinicians all the way through licensed professionals.
0: That's a big jump in a pretty short period of time.
1: It's been amazing. It's um we there's this running joke, and I think it you will you will find this in many grassroots nonprofits. So building the plane as it's in the air, that's certainly been um, a part of our journey. But it's been so lovely to see the number of times that we're like, oh, we need a rotor. Wait, somebody get that. You know, like that extension to the the engine piece, and seeing it grow and and continue to build as we're also working through all of the 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 sort of of important pieces of the system. And so it's been a big year, it's been um, a huge and fast growing year, but we've been able to keep pace um, and we hope to continue to keep pace and continue to grow for our community.
0: And part of that growth process is you provide professional development opportunities. How does all that work?
1: Yeah, so um, one of the most lovely professional development opportunities that Arrow was able to partner in just this um, just this this winter, I guess, or the beginning of this year, um, was a two part series, a two part workshop called "Grief, Love, and Action" um, in the BIPOC community. So, so myself and several other licensed professionals and social justice advocates got together. We spent almost three three to six months really creating this workshop that we then could offer um, professional development, continued education credits for professionals to attend, but also community members were welcome to, uh, to to attend and really it was to engage the community around the issues of um, racial justice and social equity and talk about the grief and loss in the black community. Um, And so it was just a really lovely two days of a workshop. We had so much good feedback. We are really excited to bring that workshop again to the community. but I think it's going to take a little bit of time and there are all of the other collaborations that are happening to get that one back on the schedule. So that's one. Um, another one that feels really near and dear to me and so important to sort of my my personal beliefs and interests, but also myself as a professional. So we work with Stanton Pride. Um, we have for the last three years and, and the work that they've done in the LGBTQ community to bring the months of, vis- of um, visibility. So the months of celebration, the months of, of taking up space and ownership. And so part of our partnership for Stanton Pride this year has been the development of a four-part series workshop around storytelling and so really the focus I'm actually the facilitator of that workshop the focus is on saying one you have a story it's worth telling two can we develop that story into something that can be told um, on the larger um, in a larger framework like a storytelling um, event And, and three can we hold space for the intricacies and the passion and um, the intimacy and the vulnerability of storytelling, um, and and make it safe to do that? And so we completed our first series in in June of the workshop, or not in June. Actually, it would have been the month before that. And then in June we had our first live event where we actually had members of the community and also members of that first workshop come together and present a storytelling event for the community to, to see that progression of that particular um, partnership grow was also just a really lovely representation of all the work that we hope to be continuing to do in the community.
0: And you know, when you talk about storytelling, certainly being able to share your personal experience can be an important part of positive mental health. I saw a statistic that people who identify as LGBTQ are 60% more likely to suffer from mental illness. Why is that group particularly vulnerable?
1: Well, I think Beth, it's it's the word that you just use. It's that vulnerability, right? So when when we are already vulnerable because of our identity, because of our um because of the color of our skin, because of our disabilities, when we already exist in vulnerable spaces and vulnerability in our skin, it can be really hard to say the thing that you said to me or the thing that you did to me made me feel unsafe or it um, hurt my feelings or whatever it is, it's really hard to have a voice when you already live sort of tentatively in this vulnerability um, every single day of your life. And when you don't speak the words whether it's to a mental health professional or you know trusted uh, community member or on a live stage wherever that is when you don't speak those words then depression can increase anxiety can increase, uh, increase um lack of trust in community can increase so all of these things that can be mitigating factors to negative mental health is is you become more um prone to them as a result of just being part of vulnerable populations.
0: And do you feel that LGBTQ people in rural communities are more vulnerable?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, when we look at rural communities, it is, there's a difference in, in levels of education. There's a difference in levels of access to resources. There's a difference in, um, ability or spaces for um, community engagement, you like open and honest conversation around vulnerable populations or around differences or around um, what your your neighbor might need to feel safe in your neighborhood. There's there's such a deficit, there's a barrier to that in, in rural communities. And so I think it can absolutely cause for, um, Increases in negative mental health or negative um, experiences with, with healthcare professionals, or all of these other potential negatives that, that come as a result of the lack of access that occurs in rural settings.
0: And VRHA recently launched our Pride of Rural Virginia project, which is looking at promoting healthcare settings which provide a safe and affirming environment for people who identify as LGBTQ. From your viewpoint, how does having an affirming healthcare provider improve the overall quality of care?
1: So, as I was saying earlier, when if you don't feel like the space you're walking into is safe, you one may not go, you two may not say what it is that you really need, and you three may come away from there not getting what you actually the resources that you actually needed. So, when healthcare providers can not just say, this is a, an affirming space, but can also have a presentation of that from the moment you walk in the door to the moment you get your vitals taken to the moment you get your discharge summary and recommendations. When they can have this experience that they feel safe and they feel heard, then they're. 10 times more likely to have their actual needs met during that visit or follow-up visits or or during the course of their treatment by said healthcare professional.
0: And as part of that initiative, we're going to be providing education to hospital and clinic staff on how to make their facilities welcoming places. What are some of the things you think we should consider?
1: So first of all, I just wanna say I love that idea. Um, I think that, education is the first important step, right? To, to be able to just say, this is not about whether you do or don't have a deficit. This is how we make you a better healthcare professional for this particular population. So any type of competencies around, um, cultural humility, um, identity, confirming language, um, identity, confirming spaces, um, our own implicit biases and the ways that they show up, healthcare disparities that have already existed for marginalized populations. Those are some really great places to start the training and conversation for these healthcare professionals, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. And we certainly want to make sure we include the whole environment. You know, everybody from the person at the front desk, handing out intake forms to the primary care provider. I think everybody needs to be included
1: right well and so that's a great point beth right just your your intake documentation does it have all of the different um facets of identity that a person can actually identify does it have the ability for a person to say i choose to not disclose x y and z and that not prevent them from getting the services that they need so absolutely from the intake documentation all the way through the rest of the process i think it's so important that there's a focus on are we inclusive? If we're not inclusive, how do we shift policy or procedure or paperwork to ensure that we are inclusive so that when we say we are inclusive and affirming, it is an actual true fact.
0: I saw something where one clinic was just putting out pronoun stickers is just a very easy way to say, hey, we want to make sure that we get it right with you.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think that's another thing that I love about the work that you um, are, VHRA, or VHRA are doing is that the education piece should never fall on the patient or the member of, of said community so where we might be able to say you know as an lgbtq person i need x y and z from you it is not our responsibility to provide that education and so every opportunity that a healthcare provider has to say we we understand our onus in this and we did the work and and you know like choose the sticker that fits you best like it it alleviates that stress of of folks feeling like they have to come in and tell you everything they need you to know and be educated on in order to get the service that they need
0: and if someone's considering behavioral health as a career what advice would you give that person
1: oh man so i love this question because as i said i've been through three different you know major careers in my life what do you Um, wish
0: you would (laughs) have known at age 20?
1: i think i i wish that i would have known the the right avenue. So be it um, volunteer, um, career experience, education, whatever it is. And, and quite frankly, all three of those really matter. So I wish that I had had someone to sit down with me, even pre an academic advisor, right, to say, here's what it looks like to start your journey. Here's how the path will progress. Here's where. Here's what you get at the end of the process. I think that's very important for um, mental health professionals because there are so many degrees and really so many important defes- professions in the human services field, but not all of them lead to behavioral health. Not all of them lead to counseling. Um, so, So I would encourage folks to To seek out mentors, it's a thing that I do all of the time. As a mental health professional, I've had you know college students or previous um, folks in previous careers that are like, "Hey, I also don't want to do this anymore. Can I, you know, spend forty five minutes talking with you about the journey?" I'm happy to do that. So find someone who will be a mentor to you in that process and and help you find the right path. And then the other thing that I would say is to be really diligent about learning all of the different communities and populations and um, different needs that happen in the behavioral health field. It doesn't mean that you serve them all, but I think it's really important to have this very large diverse view of what the field looks like as you're growing into professionalism you can make start to make real choices about the populations that you are best capable of serving which is also really important to our profession
0: sure because it's one thing to say hey i want to be a psychologist when i grow up but that means very many things in Mm -hmm. very different settings Mm
1: -hmm.
0: All right. So our last question: If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America?
1: Oh man, I so I w- I would have ten thousand arrows everywhere. Um, again, <laughs> I'm biased, but this this model that I think our you know five to ten to fifteen year goal is not just to create a grassroots organization that supports the mental health and well-being of our community, but to create a model of mental health that breaks down barriers, that trains new professionals, that creates partnerships within communities that can be used all over um, anywhere, really, nationally, globally, whatever that looks like. so that, that's my hope for rural mental health and, and, and behavioral health in general, is that we have more organizations willing to stand up and say, we want to fight against the barriers, we want to break them down, we want to serve more people in whatever ways that looks like.
0: All right, thank you, Sabrina.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me, Beth.
0: That's Sabrina Burris, advocating for community partnerships everywhere. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, check out our upcoming Pride of Rural Virginia Community Conversations. Visit vrha.org and click the Pride button at the bottom of the page. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.